The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show where I investigate the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. And this is our last show of the season. Over the course of 13 episodes, you have joined me for conversations about open office plans, how to trust our intuition, and what happens when the crazy improbability of striking it really, really rich at a startup happens to you. Yeah, that was our chat with Google's first chef, Charlie Ayers. There was Elizabeth Gilbert, who told us that we don't have to love our jobs. There was Abby Wambach, who encouraged us to find our packs and support each other. So before we get into today's episode, I just want to thank you, our listeners. There's a lot of podcasts out there, but so many of you returned week after week. I hope our conversations have helped you to think about your work differently, whatever it may be. And we are coming back with new episodes right after Labor Day. So who do you want to hear from? What topics do you want to talk about? Write me at hellomonday at linkedin.com. For today, I want to close out our first season with a conversation about how you put together and encourage teams. Our guest today has helped assemble teams like the New England Patriots, the San Francisco 49ers, and the Philadelphia Eagles. Michael Lombardi is a former general manager talent scout for the NFL. For three decades, he reviewed potential players to figure out who belonged on teams. He knows a lot about how to weigh talent versus character. He doesn't think competitiveness can be taught at all. And he believes the best coaches are planners and crazy great communicators. They make sure every last person down to the ball boy knows exactly what is expected of them. You don't have to be a football fan to appreciate the precision and strategy that go into putting together a winning team. What Michael has learned applies well beyond the game. All right, here's Michael. I think when you're in sports, people have this notion, as fans do, that it's just you're collecting baseball cards, right? And the reality of being in sports is no different than being in business. You are building a team, not collecting baseball cards. And every team member has to work together with synergy, and they have to be involved in the right culture. So it's really a a situation where business and football are so much alike, or business and sports, because it's really about how we're going to build a team. But the thing that I am most curious about is the difference between one talented person And a talented person in the context of a team, first of all, is one more important than the other? Well, you can't win with just talent. Talent alone will never win, I think. So it's really about how you see your company and the pieces that have to work together and how it all fits. So you, in your book that I really enjoyed over the last few weeks, you start by saying, look, culture beats everything. Everything. So how do you build culture? Oh, well, people think they use that word culture, right? They think it's like a pesticide that the guy comes in, he sprays, and you, you know, now you have culture, right? Which is completely false. Culture starts the first day you take over the company, the first day you start something new. And most people have this ridiculous notion that they're going to, when they start a new job, they have this because they heard the president say it. Well, we have the first hundred days, you know, when... Really, they should talk about the last 100 days. Like, first of all, before you start on a journey, you have to figure out how you got the job. Like, you're not more talented than the next person, right? You're not a better coach than the coach who just left. 
what were his problems. And if you can't figure out what he screwed up with, you're never going to be able to fix it. So spend 10 days figuring that out. And then once you figure that out, you have to come up with a paragraph or two of who you want to be as a company. Bob Caro, who wrote five books, he's one of my heroes. He wrote Power Broker. Power Broker. Great book on Robert Moses. He wrote four on LBJ. Before he writes any book, uh, he starts with a paragraph or two at the most to tell himself what the book is about. And every morning before he goes to the Fist Building in Manhattan here to write, he talks, he reads that paragraph again. Well, it's the same thing for companies. We have this notion that mission statements are really what we're about when mission statements are completely, they do nothing for you. They're just something for the fans to look at on the wall. But if you know who you want to be, okay, for a football team, I want to be a big, fast, physical football team who can play in any kind of weather, then you build the team that resembles that paragraph. So it starts with a blueprint. So tease out for me how you teach people to play well together. Well, the first thing you do, like the first thing you do in any business, is define the role. I think we don't spend enough time on job descriptions. We don't spend. We want to have a great culture, and then people see Belichick say, do your job, right? Then there's a period at the end of do your job. Nobody tells people what their jobs are. Right. And people walk around aimlessly wondering, like, what's my job? Well, in New England, you know what your job is. So the only way I can get us to play together is you know what your job is. I know what your job is. You know what my job is. And I rely on you to do your job. You rely on me to do my job. But if I don't define what your job is, how do we all work together? So that comes down to a manager, the manager, the coach being extraordinarily explicit about what everybody is contributing individually. Absolutely. And it's not just something you say. Bill Walsh used to, and he got this from Paul Brown, the former head of the Cleveland Browns, owner of the Cincinnati Bengals. He would meet with us at least once a month to go over our job descriptions. We would sit in a room and Bill would bring out his notebook and he would go over our job descriptions at least once a month, maybe once every two months. Even after you've worked for him for a while? It didn't matter. He wanted you to make sure you understood exactly what your job were, how you were doing. How often do you hear people say, I don't know what my job is? Nobody grades me on what I do. Nobody talks to me about how I'm doing. I just assume I'm okay because I I, I'm still here. That's how culture starts to fade away. When you talk to people about what their jobs are and define it constantly, evolve it, how do you improve it, what do you have to do, then you become better at your job. And job descriptions, to me, it sounds very mundane, but I tell every young coach who wants to become a head coach, before you think about going into an interview, you better have everybody's job descriptions in a notebook, down to the ball boy, down to the whomever what their job descriptions are, and more importantly, what type of characteristics must be able to fulfill that job. How does a coach step up and earn the faith of a team? I mean, you don't just get that on day one because you walk in a room and put on a hat. Well, there's four characteristics of leadership the way I see it. And and the first area is called command of the room, which means you have a plan, which we talked about. A leader will always come in with a plan. And then the next area is called command of the message, which is you're going to explain your plan. And this is where we're talking. Now, these next two areas are where we're talking about. The next area is command of the process. Somebody has to oversee what's going on and how it's going. Remember, managers do things right. Leaders do the right thing. Hmm. There's a difference, right? You're a manager. You do things right. If you're a leader, you're doing the right thing. you got to do the right thing. you got to see what the right thing. You have to be able to anticipate what's going to happen and be able to build yourself that way and go forward. 
And then it's command of self, command of trust. The person has to trust you to be consistent. And we've seen this time and time again. As long as you are consistent with your employees, they'll develop a trust. You can be a jerk. And if you're a consistent jerk to everybody, they just buy it. They don't like it, but they buy in. That's just the way the guy is, right? Or the girl is. But if you're inconsistent, you've lost their trust. If you do something for one that you don't do for somebody else, or if you behave in a different way than someone else behaves because you're the boss, you lose their trust. It happens all the time. It happens with, in sports, we'll see it more with quotes in the paper. When Belichick, when Rob Gronkowski retired, this is a fascinating quote that the media just overlooked, but it was a cultural-based quote that when Rob Gronkowski, the star tight end of the New England Patriots, retired, Belichick didn't come out and say he's one of the greatest tight ends of the history of the sport. He didn't say without Rob, we wouldn't have won five Super Bowls or whatever they've won. He came out and said Rob was a great teammate. Rob was a hard worker. Why? Because what he wanted to do is use Rob's dominance, Rob's ability, Rob's behavior to alert the other people who are following behind him to be in the culture. So I love that you bring that up because I think that that is – Something that's being challenged right now, this idea that if you are a star in anything, if you are a star in, I work in technology, if you happen to be one of the handful of people who understand artificial intelligence and can program algorithms, if you are the star football player, you believe, and sometimes the market can dictate, that the rules that govern everybody else shouldn't govern you. Right. Yeah, there's there's always this, because I'm the exception to the rule, I'm talent, talent rules, right? right. And what we find is talent only works if, if you're a, if you're an individual, if you're working on your own, that's fine. Your talent carries you. But as a part of a team, talent can't carry you. you got to be part of the fabric of the team. And I think the leader instinctively thinks they can win over those people. It's called the law of threes, right? So there's three groups of people in every organization. The first group will do, you know, we're sitting here in the Empire State Building. There's a group of people in this building. They'll do anything you want at any time of the day you want them to do it, right? That's group one. Group two... Those are mostly all the people that are undecided on where things are going, right? And then there's this group three that you talked about, the people that have high skill level, high productivity, but they're really difficult to get along with. So the leader, because we become self-serving and egocentric, we think we can change anybody, right? Right. So the leader tries to win over group three and takes everybody who's in group one and moves them into group three because that's the only way they get attention. And all the people in group one are wondering what the hell's going on. Whereas the smart leader says, you know what? I'm only going to focus on group one. Hmm. I'm only going to work with the people that really – because if I build that group one out, everybody in group two moves to group one, and then the talented person is, becomes an isolation, and they can't handle that. Let's face it. People that are talented can't handle being isolated. They want credit. They want praise. There is a narcissistic element to them. Right. And if you play to that narcissism and give them attention one way or the other, positively or negatively – that's exactly what they want. But if you ignore them, that's their kryptonite. So don't reward it. Don't reward it. Ignore it. Yeah. They have a job. They do it. If they put a piece of paper on your desk and they've been a problem, don't thank them. Just ignore them. Coming up after the break, we hear from LinkedIn's managing news editor, Caroline Fairchild, about why we're smarter to focus on teams instead of uber-talented individuals. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise 
that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back with Caroline Fairchild. Hey, Caroline. Hey, Jesse. So Michael does a great job of giving us the blueprint for what makes good talent for teams and how to find it. But this week, I wanted to learn more about why. Why do you have to focus on teams over talent? And I found out that this is a really big issue right now. This spring, Harvard Business Review came out with a study, and they called it The Power of Hidden Teams. In it, the researchers used thousands of data points to prove that if you want engaged employees at work, making great teams is the first thing you need to do. Okay, so this idea of engaged employees, that to me is such a corporate buzzword at this point. I mean, what does it even mean to be an engaged employee? Right. You definitely feel like a data point when you hear your company talking about engaged employees. But it really just means that you're involved in your work and you're enthusiastic about it. So, of course, employers want that. But why do they care about if you're quote-unquote engaged on the job? Well, all the research shows that engagement leads to more productivity, innovation, and retention. Oh, and then there's the fact that studies show that on the whole, only 16% of employees at work are engaged. That means 84% are just showing up to do a job and then they're leaving. And that's bad for companies. Okay, so how does being on a great team fix this? This is where things get really interesting, and I actually learned something on this issue. In the past, when employers have been faced with this idea of, okay, we have unengaged employees, what do we do? They focused on one of two things. One, this elusive thing called culture, which at this point is also a buzzword. So they talk about changing how the company talks about the mission, promoting things like work-life balance, etc., And then the second thing that employers have focused on is the individual. If one employee is unengaged, let's talk to them solo. Let's give them more feedback. Let's see what's going wrong. But neither of those really move the needle, according to the research. The real game changer is... Let me guess. Teams. It's teams. So employees who say that they do a majority of their work on a team are twice as likely to be engaged at work. And employees who are on teams with a leader that they deeply trust, eight times more likely. So the takeaway here is that organizations need to do a better job of just connecting people in the office. A lot of our work is individually based, but the companies that make it clear that all workers are a part of a larger team are more likely to be productive and produce better results. Okay, so working on teams better than working alone. But what are the components of the best teams? Well, trust in the team leader is the biggest part of well-performing teams. How do you measure trust? Employees who trust their team leads say yes to these statements. They say yes to, at work, I clearly understand what is expected of me. They say yes to, I have a chance to use my strengths every day at work. So going back to Michael, that's why Bill Walsh, the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, would go over job descriptions with everyone every month. It's super important to know what your job is. Another part of this is designing teams so you kind of get that light touch interaction with your manager every month. At tech companies, Jesse, you know this, we do this thing called weekly one-on-ones where you just touch base for typically 30 minutes with your manager. It can seem like a nuisance, but just getting a little bit of feedback each week that you're on the right track can go a long way towards productivity and, yes, engagement. And then the last one I'll mention, because I think it's important, is that engagement has nothing to do with being in the same room as your manager or your team. The study found that employees who work from home most of the time are actually more engaged than their office-bound employees. That just tells us that engagement is about who you work with, not where. And the how, how you work with them. Exactly. Thank you, Caroline. Thanks, Jesse. All right, back to my conversation with Michael Lombardi. So what's more important, actual physical talent when it comes to football or character? 
character. Character matters. And it, it took a long time for me to figure learn this. I mean, this is not just I did, in 1984, my first job with the 49ers, did I just think character mattered? I, I was, you know, I thought chemistry was something that we did in lab, you know, but character really matters because what happens to you is there's always going to be a moment in your life. There's always going to be a moment in a game where you're going to have to dig deep and figure out what do I have? Do I overcome this? How do I get out of this? What do I have to do? What must I be able to figure out? And if you don't have those obstacles, if you don't have that mental toughness to do it, you'll never win, no matter how talented you are. And can you build either? Can you build talent where there is no talent? Can you build character where there is no displayed or proven character? You can improve talent. You're never going to be the most talented person, but you can improve them if you define the role that they play in. That's A. B, character really comes down to past performance predicts future achievement. What your character was in the past is going to be what it becomes in the future. You know, it's very difficult for, you know, if you've had issues to think you're always going to change or work habits or competitive habits. Those are hard to change. It's either ingrained in you. And what you have to do is is ask the person to explain it. If I said to you, Jesse, do you work hard? You would say, yeah, I work hard. Of course I work hard. But if I said to you, give me three examples of how you work hard, that's a different, now you're giving me a different answer to the same question. Right. And now define who you are. And through that definition, I know whether I could change you or not. Well, that's really interesting. And so when you say you know whether you can change me or not, that would depend on what I have just showed you that I Your believe answer. it means to work yeah. hard. Right. right. If you said I worked hard, well, you know, I, and if all it's all self-serving. It's not about helping others or helping the team. Then I know that really you're, you view yourself as a hard worker through your own eyes, not through – you know, what you do to make other people better as well. So your answers really play a key component to what the question is. But if I ask you a general question and you, oh, yeah, I work hard. I've never asked a player in my <laughs> life if they work hard and they didn't say, oh, yeah, I work hard. I, just like I've never called a player that wasn't coming back from a workout. Like they're always just coming back from a workout. Oh, I just got back from a workout. You know, that's a complete lie. <laughs> so you have to shape it so that you can get the answer you, you want to you get most into their personality. Well, let me ask you, is narcissism always a bad thing or is it, or is there a, an important aspect to narcissism on a team that wants to win? Well, I think there is an important element of that stick what they used to teach us in Catholic school, you know, that dogged determination and sometimes ego because we don't want to be embarrassed. Churchill had this saying, they asked him when he became prime minister in England, they said, uh, you know, why did no one listen to you all through the 30s? And he said, because fear does the work of reason. You know, when the Germans are in the Channel port, the British people were fearful, right? Now we could reason with them. It's the same thing with most everyone. I mean, a narcissist who's fearful of not being successful has a lot better chance of being reasoned with. Sure. That makes sense. So, you know, you spend so much of your career scouting for talent. So how do you identify someone who's going to perform well? Well, so, you know, this is why I think sports and business are so much alike. And what LinkedIn does is so much alike. The FBI doesn't open up a phone directory and look for a serial killer, right? (laughs) They don't just say, okay, we're going to start looking for serial killers. Let's go to the Manhattan directory here. They have a profile. Well, it's the same thing we do in sports at every position. So, a quarterback's profile is different than a defensive tackle's profile, different than a defensive end's profile, different than a corner's profile. But we build profiles of what we want. 
And just in any business, you have to build a profile of what you want. Because remember what I said earlier in this conversation, you are who you want to be. If you write that Robert Caro paragraph, that's who you want to be. So that's who you're going to become. Mm -hmm. So your hiring practices have to go back to that paragraph. Right. So we're going to set a, we're going to set a model. We're going to build a profile for all those people that we want to be. So, for example, you know, I want a quarterback who's really smart, who's won college games, whatever it is, you know, you set that profile. Then you go look for that the players that fit the profile. So think of it as an overlay. Here's the, here's the profile. You put the overlay over the player. Does he match? Does he not? Hiring is not about finding the next great talent. Hiring is about eliminating people from the process. That's interesting. It, it, so explain that. So instead of me saying there's 15 people I want to hire, if I don't have any standards, I can't eliminate anybody. Right. So scouting, hiring using the same term, is about elimination, not about finding. I want to eliminate people that don't fit the criteria and then boil it down to A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. So now I'm dealing with the same type of people. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a grading system that allows you to do that, that, which is what we developed in Cleveland in 1991 that they still use in New England, is a grading system allows you to do it. And there has to be modifications within the grading system. Gil Brandt, who's going in the Hall of Fame with the Dallas Cowboys, he spent a lot of time with the Army back in the 60s, developing a grading system with letters and tags to utilize in pro football to help eliminate people that didn't fit the criteria. So it strikes me that over the course of your career, you've you've been right about a lot of people. You've probably also been wrong about a lot of people. Which is a good thing. What have you learned from those times? Well, that, those are the best times. I think w if you don't do an autopsy on your mistakes, you're just never going to go anywhere. The hardest challenge in sports is to figure out why you won or why you lost. And if you don't do that continuously, you're going to make a lot more mistakes. Why did we win? When I used to get on the team plane for the Oakland Raiders, Al Davis would call me over and say, kid, why did we win or why did we lose? And I'd have to give him an answer that wasn't which would you would read in the paper the next day by the columnist. It had to be a true professional answer. And it's the same thing that should happen in business. Why did we have a good quarter? Why did we not? And it isn't because it was bad weather or some f fact of nature. But the mistakes or the areas where you can grow the most from are your mistakes. And if you're not willing to embrace them, if you're willing to not let your ego take it on and ownership to it, because we're constantly trying to through social media, through all this, we're constantly being praised and we gravitate to it. So we've built up the system of not wanting to dig into our mistakes when those are the only chances we have to get better. We can make larger gains from learning from our mistakes than we can from anything we do winning. Can you teach somebody to be more competitive? No, I don't think you can. I think, it's, I think when your mama lifted you from your crib, you either had it or you didn't. <laughs> do you think that competitiveness is ever gets in the way? Or is it always a good thing? It's always a good thing. I think it sometimes has to be tempered. I think it, it's people say he's a bad loser. Well, it depends on how you define competitiveness. If it's a selfish competitiveness, if you're mad because I didn't score all the points, but we won, or we're mad because I didn't score points and we lost, then that's that's not the right kind of competitiveness. If it's a team endeavor, if it's a way to be, have a growth mindset and look into how, why we didn't win, and where we focused our competitiveness to, yeah, it can be very beneficial.
You know, it seems to me like there's a strain of competitiveness that is being competitive with yourself. You want to always improve whatever it is that is your game. For me, it's a, I've been a writer for my entire life. I always want to be improving. And then there's competitiveness that is about competing with other people. And I'm curious if they're both equally important. One is more important than the other. You know, I think the Stoics teach us to compete against someone else is you're allowing your space to be invaded and you'll never compete with your own self well because you're all constantly comparing yourself to somebody else. But if you stay within that silo of I'm competing with myself to get 1% better every single day, I'm going to write better every day, 1%, not 10%, not 50%, that James Clear in, in talks about in his book, Atomic Habits, that 1% can really compound interest tremendously. So I think it's really about collectively we have to improve, individually we have to improve 1% every single day. When you wake up in the morning and if you think about your life and have the opportunity to improve that 1% today, whether you read an hour, whether you take notes on a subject, however you want to do it, how do you improve? And then what? how do you measure yourself as you're improving, right? It isn't when you read Twitter and say somebody liked your column, that's not really measuring yourself that you become a better writer, right? You only can measure yourself by how you feel the words come out of your mind and onto the paper. And that's really all about what you can do. To, to worry about other people, I think it takes too much time and energy. I, I really believe through my experience is you waste too much energy worrying about the competition. Coming up after the break, Michael tells us how pro football has changed since the 80s. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. All right, back to my conversation with Michael Lombardi. How has the game changed over the decades that you have been working in it and studying it? Uh, you know, the injury factor is certainly a concern. The NFL is more concerned about injuries, that, that concussions... Uh, how they coach the game, teach the game. We used to have three practices a day when I first started in the NFL. Now we're down to one a day. So player safety is paramount. The equipment's much better, but the game's so much faster. The The emergence of the athlete today, the natural athlete today, the non-steroid athlete today, when, when I first got started in the 80s, we didn't really know about steroids. Huh. We knew about them, but we didn't understand them. You know, we made mistakes in the draft process when I was at San Francisco, and the mistakes come back to steroids. If you look at the great greatest mistakes in NFL history, you know, if NFL, if you watch NFL uh, Channel and you see the here are the top ten blown, blown picks in NFL history, ninety nine point nine percent of them are because of steroids and not understanding the steroid because the player was was artificially 
increased by his work ethic, by his talent. And once he couldn't do the steroids, he wasn't the same player. And you, in the 80s, at the beginning of your career, didn't have the capacity to be able to identify that. No, we didn't. In yeah. fact, Bill Walsh made me do a project. I thought I was back at school on steroids. Literally had to go to the library. I had to go to the Stanford Library and, and write a report on steroids. I didn't know what Winstraw was or Anna, you know, Adderall or any of that stuff was. Where do you get it? How do you buy it? It was all black market. And so there was no internet to go study it. So there's steroids. The game moves a lot faster. The concern about injury is obviously significant and growing. Will that ultimately change football in some profound way? I think it it has already. I think it has. It, it, it's it's moving to a safer game. It's not as physically uh, dominant. The players are not, you know, receivers can go across the middle of the field without fear of getting the really knocked unconscious. I think there is an element. It's always going to be a violent sport. I think the violence is what makes it so attractive. It is the Colosseum, you know, of Rome, that element to it. But I do think that the more increased player safety, the coaching and technology helps in any profession. You can teach better with the technology we have. You can, you know, when I first started in 1984, we were on 16 millimeter tape and and Roy Gilbert, our ex-Marine driver, used to drive the tape from Redwood City to Berkeley after practice, wait for it to be developed and then drive it back. Could you imagine <laughs> that commute today? I mean, we'd never see Roy if he had to do that commute today. (laughs) seriously, hours. Yeah, and so, but that's how it worked. And so how can you really develop talent if you don't have the, the, the ability to use some of the technology that we have? Now it's, you can sit at your desk and watch everything. How about the players actually coming into the league? Are, Are they different in any fundamental ways in terms of character, what they want for themselves, how they understand football as a game? Well, they yeah, it's really different. I mean, remember when when I was growing up, there was there wasn't as much, there was cable, but there wasn't as Springsteen would say, there wasn't seven hundred channels and nothing on, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so their education about the game is less because they're outside doing more. There's more video games to play. There's more things to entertain them. There's a lot of distractions. Again, that was Michael Lombardi, a former GM talent scout for the NFL. He also has a great new podcast, and you should check it out, The GM Shuffle. So now it's time for our summer break. Spend some time in the sun, rest and replenish your imagination, and keep in touch on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe to the newsletter I write every week. I will keep writing. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Laura Sim with reporting by Caroline Fairchild. Joe Georgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of editorial video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Our music was by Poddington Bear in Pachyderm. And special thanks to my wife, Frances, who listened to every edit of every episode almost as many times as I did. And to superfan Pat Hempel and all the members of the Reed family of Tupelo, Mississippi. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. Thanks for listening. You got any advice for me with my new baby son at home? Yeah, I would just think, I would just keep encouraging him to do whatever he wanted to do. I think the thing that that I we didn't talk about this, but I think if you look at the test of the way we educate our kids in America, we preclude them from being divergent in thought. Mm-hmm. And I would just keep trying to teach them to be divergent in thought because in they did a study at kindergartners. Uh, they gave them a paperclip and said, "How many ways can you utilize this paperclip?" and 
85% of the kindergarten class found 10 or more ways to use it. They took that same kindergarten class four years later, and now that went from 85 down to 65. Then they did it four more years, and it went from 65 down to 40. Divergent thinking is the changing element of what we all should do. Yeah. It's so hard. It's hard. Right? They took it my, my age, we'd probably all be using the paperclip exactly the same way to exactly. put the papers together. So I would, my advice is force them to be divergent. Yeah. 